to the Not All Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. The show covering all things health, wellness, culture, and more. The show for all of us who aren't old, we're better. Each week, we'll interview superstars, experts, and ordinary people doing extraordinary things, all related to this wonderful experience of getting better, not just older. Now, here's your host, the award-winning Paul Vogelzang. Welcome to a special edition of the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, where today... We're rolling out the red carpet for an exclusive Oscars preview that promises to be as captivating as the ceremonies themselves. I'm Paul Vogelzang, our guest today, who will be guiding us through a wonderful evening about the Oscars, is a returning favorite, Smithsonian associate, well-known film critic, Noah Gattel. Noah Gattel works for The Atlantic, The Ringer, and BBC, among many others, as we gear up for the Academy Awards on March 10th, celebrating the pinnacle of cinematic achievements from the past year. We dive deep into the heart of Oscars season, unpacking the surprises, the snubs, and the sheer spectacle of the race to those coveted golden statuettes. Noah Gattel will be presenting at Smithsonian Associates coming up, so please check out our notes today for more details. But we have Noah Gattel today. He is here to share his insider's look at the Oscars. Of course, he is a returning guest and so much the favorite with our audience here at Smithsonian Associates. We are going to learn about the intricacies of the Academy Awards, all the history, the trivia, We're going to have this wonderful, discerning discussion with Noah Gattel on this year's most talked about nominations and performances. With an evening that illuminates the backstage stories, the rumors, and the gossip, Noah Gattel will share a little bit with us today, but more at the Smithsonian Associates presentation so that all will be assured that you will be the most enlightened guest at any Oscar party. So join in with us today. Check out our show notes for more information about Noah Gattel coming up at Smithsonian Associates. So whether you've already picked your favorites or you're keen to hear about expert insights on this year's contenders from the groundbreaking to the controversial, I've got my favorites. I love holdovers. I loved American fiction. And of course, Killers of the Flower Moon are my top three. So join us for this unforgettable journey at the heart of the Oscars. This is the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates interview series with a special edition about our celebration of the art of cinema and the stories that shape our world, making every moment count. So please stay tuned. Noah Gattel, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Paul. Always a pleasure. Yep, always great to talk to you too. I uh, I love movies, and 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 I know you do, and so we always have a, have a, a really great conversation. Oscars, Academy Awards coming up. You and I catch up with each other about this same time each year. I have to say, this is an interesting year for Oscars. There's so many great films, and and I really I just want to jump right into this because you know there there have been some surprises some upsets and i i wonder 
how you're going to weave all that together with your Smithsonian Associates presentation, because my bet is it's going to be an exciting presentation from you with everything going on. Well, the thing that's really fascinating about the Oscars, and to me, the thing that keeps me hanging on, you know, Mm -hmm. watching every Mm -hmm. ceremony every year and and following the storyline throughout the year, is that sometimes the Oscars get it incredibly right. And sometimes they get it mind-bogglingly wrong. <laughs> they pick movies that you just know we're not going to be talking about in five or ten years. So it's really this, this snapshot of this moment in time, these films selected by a group of, uh, of film artists who, you know, many of them have nothing in common, everything from agents to Hollywood stars to craftspeople. And it all coalesces into this one night when when these choices are made and you know it's it's a thing that ties hollywood history together they've been doing this since 1928 and uh there's just so many storylines to unpack so much history to unpack that it always gives us something to talk about and and for my presentation on uh, march 8th i'm going to go over the the history of the awards the origin of the awards which i think are very instructive in, in terms of how to think about them now and then all the changes that have happened in the Academy and the ceremony itself over the last decade or so, which play a major role in some of these nominations. So, as you know, no shortage of stories to, <laughs> to delve into. Right. We're all talking about Barbie. I mean, it is everywhere. We, we're we not big Super Bowl fans here, but we watched and we saw Ryan Gosling in an ad. And, and of course, you know, he seems to be everywhere and... We're hearing a lot about Maestro. My gosh, we're hearing so much about Paul Giamatti's eye from Holdovers. Just some great, great, great subjects. It, it all seems to come together, as you say, and the process is an amazing one. So talk to us a little bit about your biggest surprise and maybe some of the most glaring snubs here. Because, uh, you know, I mentioned Barbie, and that seems to be on that list. Yeah, Barbie uh, got a lot of attention mm-hmm. on, a, on nomination day because... Margot Robbie was not nominated in Best Actress, and Greta Gerwig was not nominated as Best Director. It should be noted that they were both nominated in other categories. Greta Gerwig was uh, nominated for co-writing the screenplay with her uh, partner, Noah Baumbach, and Margot Robbie was a producer of Barbie, so she gets a Best Picture nomination as well. But those snubs were the source of much, much controversy, and you know, I'm of two minds about it. I think it's always worth looking at trends. And Greta Gerwig has now not been nominated Best Director for her last two films, Barbie and Little Women, both of which were nominated for Best Picture. Now, part of that is because 10 films get nominated for Best Picture and only five can be nominated for Best Director. So inevitably, some will not make the cut. But there is a trend here. And it has been said that the director's branch is very heavily male, and they've never nominated two women in that category at once. Justin Trier for Anatomy of a Fall is nominated this year. Uh, and that maybe Gerwig is the uh, object of some male bias here. And when it comes to Roby, you know, I think what, what we have to keep in mind here is that Best Actress is a really competitive category. And it has been for quite a while now. You know, when I was a kid, I was growing up in the 80s and 90s. I remember Best Actress was like a category. They had to really kind of stretch to find five uh, worthy performances. And often there would be one or two from a movie nobody had really been talking about. That's not the case anymore. And it really speaks to how the industry has changed and how more uh, women-led films are being made. 
And unfortunately, Robbie just didn't make the cut uh, there. As far as positive surprises, uh, I think Past Lives getting in Best Picture is a real nice surprise. That was a lovely movie, a very small movie, basically a three-hander with three kind of main characters in it, this love triangle uh, from A24. And A24, the studio, has been great about getting Best Picture nominations the last few years. They, they had everything everywhere all at once last year, so they clearly know what they're doing. Uh, but this little studio got two movies in Best Picture, a Zone of Interest and Past Lives. And I think both of those movies were sort of right on the cusp. And they're very good, very challenging movies. And I'm glad they both made it. As much as I enjoyed Killers of the Flower Moon, that was a challenging movie, too. It, would you agree? I mean, it, it, it ended up with quite a few nominations, but it, it was a tough movie to watch, especially if, you know, you kind of think about what is really going on there with the Osage and our history with American Indians. It was, it was challenging. Yeah, it was. And, and Scorsese did not sensationalize any of the violence like he has done in some of his earlier films, uh, which I think was absolutely the right decision. But it does make it kind of a grimmer uh, film to watch. And the length, I mean, three and a half hours, mm-hmm. that's a mm-hmm. long movie. I've watched it twice now. And, you know, that's a whole day of my life. <laughs> it, was a day, it, was, it was a day well spent, yeah. but it's a lot of time. Um, I think it, I'm not surprised that it got so many nominations. I mean, it was a hit at the Cannes Film Festival last May, and Cannes is increasingly becoming a bellwether for Oscar films because it's a very international festival, and the Academy itself is becoming more international. They've made a lot of efforts to uh, add people to the Academy from outside the U.S. And, of course, Scorsese is just a legend. You know, mm-hmm. his films always get nominated, but... The Irishman, his last film, was nominated for 10 awards, and it won none. And I think there's a chance the same thing could happen with Killers of the Flower Moon. He's really in this, in this lane where his movies are beloved enough to be nominated, but not necessarily to win too many awards. And I think part of that is because they are so challenging, as you say. They're just not for everybody, and they don't necessarily reassure people. People like movies that make them feel good. And Killers of the Flower Moon, for everything it did well certainly was not designed to make people feel good yeah we we have in our house um some speakers attached to our television it's not fancy not really true surround sound but the music from killers of the flower moon was really incredible i just loved it and then mark ronson and ryan gosling yeah did you did you enjoy the music too yeah i I absolutely did really popped for me on the second view and i thought the score was incredible the late robbie robertson it was his last uh, film score he, from the band, of course, and a, a longtime collaborator with Scorsese. And I thought it was it was really effective. It added a lot, a lot to the film, a lot of texture. Wouldn't be an Oscars without some reference to bias that is inherently, in, you know, part of all the process, regardless of of, of Oscars or any other, uh, you know, kind of evaluation that we have. There's there's bias, and I wonder. How you see that potentially affecting the nominations in the awards, especially when you look at Barbie and and then American Fiction, which was another just fantastic film and and a comedy. And comedies typically aren't what the Academy really likes. You know, you're 100 percent right. They are typically not what the Academy likes. But if you look at the nominees this year, it's hard to argue that that is not that 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 is not changing Mm -hmm. because. You know, I mean, some we can quibble over what a comedy is exactly, but by my count, four of the Best Picture nominees are at least partly comedic, and that would be 
Barbie, The Holdovers, Poor Things, and American Fiction. And I don't have to do any research to tell you that has never happened before. Usually if there's one comedy among the Best Picture nominees, that's a, that's a big deal. Um, so I don't know if it's a coincidence. I mean, these are all from really well-established filmmakers, except for American Fiction, of course. Um, but, uh, you know, who the Academy has has celebrated before. So it might just be a bit of a coincidence that all these filmmakers decided to make a comedy this year and they did such a great job at it. But to, as far as I'm concerned, comedy, you know, you'll hear anyone say who's been involved in this sort of thing, that comedy is harder than drama. I think these films absolutely should be recognized at the Oscars. Yeah, I I got to tell you, and you mentioned holdovers and I referred to Paul Giamatti and, and I didn't quite know what to expect when watching that movie. I hadn't done a bunch of research before watching it. And as a as as somebody who's 66 years old, many of my audience will relate to this. That film just had the most unbelievable visual impact on me. It took me right back to those days, you know, 1975. I mean, I was there. The film just looks like that period. Mm. What'd you make of that? I loved it. I mean, yeah. I love, I didn't grow up in the seventies, but I, anybody who loves cinema has to love the films of the seventies. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I'm very familiar with that aesthetic. And I loved how he actually had a fake studio card for, I believe it was focus features to make it look like a seventies studio card at the beginning <laughs> of the film. Yeah. Of course, focus features did not exist in the seventies. So he made one up <laughs> and I thought that was, that was a really cute kind of wink to open the movie. But, you know, Alexander Payne, he's one of these directors who got started in the 90s, grew up in the 70s. People like Paul Thomas Anderson and Quentin Tarantino and Sofia Coppola, they all, that generation reveres the films of the 70s. They were very formative for him. And I think in this film, Payne has spoken about this, but Hal Ashby was a major influence on this movie. Movies like The Last Detail and Harold and Maude. Uh, you know, those films, you can really see them in uh, the holdovers. And I think that's part of what makes it so so comforting is that it's working in this tradition of films that we know and love. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. Noah Gattel is our returning guest. Of course, Noah Gattel is a Smithsonian associate. We'll be presenting at Smithsonian Associates coming up. And the subject of Noah Gattel's upcoming presentation will be A Night at the Oscars. We've talked to Noah Gattel before. It's always so great to connect with you again and talk about movies. I do love watching these films, and it's so nice to kind of review this. We also 
would be, I think, remiss if we didn't talk for just a, a moment, Noah Gattel, about the Oscars recognition of um, social, political themes. Um, I mentioned American Fiction, fantastic movie. I think everybody should see Rustin is another one that I think is equally impactful when it comes to social and political themes. What What's the role that you believe that the Oscars play in kind of you know, bringing about that conversation, promoting diversity, having some narratives that are about inclusivity in filmmaking? Well, there's a few things. First of all, if you believe that film in general has anything to contribute to the national discourse on race and gender and other identity issues, then the Oscars most definitely do. Because the Oscars are the only reason serious movies for adults with serious themes get made. Otherwise, Hollywood would just be making superhero movies year-round. But when a movie gets nominated for an Oscar, or really is even in the conversation to be nominated for an Oscar, it gets all this free press, right? I mean, just being nominated is free press because every outlet in the world reports on it, and uh, people who might not know about the movie hear about it, and they, they get this stamp of approval. And there are still people out there, you and me, uh, for example, who will make an effort to see every nominated movie that, that we can. And uh, if it weren't for the Oscars, the serious movies that grapple with these issues really wouldn't be made at all. But beyond that, the Academy has made an effort to really diversify their membership. It started back in 2016, I believe it was, when this activist April Rain started the Oscar So White campaign. I'm sure mm-hmm. everybody remembers that. And it really opened up this long overdue conversation about how the Academy was overly white and overly male and overly older as well. I mean, on this podcast, we're not going to have a complaint at all about there being too many people <laughs> over a certain age right, in any right. institution, right. but it should be diverse. It should, mm-hmm. it should reflect what's going on in the culture now. And the truth is the way the Academy set up, which is that you have to be sponsored to get in and you don't leave until you pass from this earth inevitably that will lead to more older people being in the academy. And that was in some ways, I think, holding the academy back uh, from reflecting uh, the culture today. So they didn't kick anyone out because that's not the right thing to do. And, you know, Martin Scorsese is 80 years old. We don't want to kick him out. That's for sure. I'd rather he just decide the Oscars on his own. Um, but they did add a lot of younger people. They added a lot of people of color. They added a lot of women. They added a lot of international members and they created a more diverse group. And we've seen the results of that over the years. I mean, the year that April rain started that campaign, there were no actors of color nominated for an Oscar this year, seven of the 20 actors nominated are actors of color. And that's just a significant change. There's certainly been an awful lot of talk on this subject with regard to America Ferreira's performance in Barbie. And that's, I think, challenging, you know, some of Hollywood standards for recognition. I I looked at that and just thought, that's a rallying cry. You know, that movie is subtle in a lot of ways, but powerful. And America Ferreira's performance just is really strong. Yeah, I thought she was great. She's a really important part of the movie. Um, But, you know, the issue uh, to me that's so relevant here is that she is only, I believe, the 10th Latino, Latinx actor to ever be nominated, ever, for the Academy Awards in almost 100 years. 
And it, it's really rare. And, and what's even more concerning is that even when uh, a Latina actress, for example, does get nominated, it, they rarely get the same sort of career bump that a white actor might get. Like if you look at the list of Latina actresses nominated in the lead category, you see names like Fernanda Montenegro, Catalina Sandino Moreno, Yelitsa Aparicio, great actors who get great performances. But when's the last time, you know, a Yelitsa Aparicio movie was number one at the box office? <laughs> I mean, it, it just doesn't happen. They don't get the same opportunities. Uh, and it's a real problem that I think needs a lot more attention, needs more of a spotlight than it's currently getting. Um, there have been great efforts to increase opportunities for black actors and actresses. More needs to be done there. More needs to be done for Lat Latinos as well. And I think America Ferreira's nomination is a really great thing. And I think she is very well positioned because she has an established career already to make something of this nomination and have her career go to the next step. And that would be an important thing uh, for Latinx people everywhere. You do so much to bring this uh, forward. And your upcoming Smithsonian Associates event, you know, with audience voting predictions, and I think that gets everybody excited. And I think it allows us to connect with the Oscars in deeper ways. And so thank you for all of your what you're doing. And I wonder if you feel the same about this connection that's established through you know, kind of more participation, more engagement, even even kind of coming up with our own voting predictions. Participation is definitely key. The mm. Academy wants people to feel invested and involved. They want them to care about the movies, first of all. But then I think everybody doing their Oscar pools is a big part of that. I'll say personally, the presentation that I put together every year helps get me excited about the Oscars. <laughs> you know, on, nomina on nominations day, <laughs> good, I'm glad to hear yeah, it. And yeah. That's what I want for everybody. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you know, on nominations day, when we find out what the slate is, I always think, oh, God, how am I going to come up with a presentation about these nominations? Mm. And then you start thinking about it and you start writing and you, you think about the trends and you think about the history and it's just such a rich text that we're dealing with here, a hundred years almost of Oscar history and, and, and American culture today, which has so many different facets to, to explore that um, I, I think it's important uh, mm -hmm. thinking about this stuff, writing about this stuff, being involved in Oscar pools, talking to your neighbors, talking to your coworkers. That's the fun part of Oscar mm -hmm. night. I mean, mm -hmm. the night itself is fun, but all the lead up to it is really where, to me, where the good stuff is. Yeah. Yeah. So on that, on that Tuesday morning when, when all the nominations were revealed, what did you think about Oppenheimer? And what did you think about Poor Things? And then Killers of the Flower Moon. So kind of all three of those were the leading nomination getters. Did you, were you in agreement with that kind of, uh, you know, grouping? Did you feel like, my gosh, this is exactly what I thought? Well, those are two different questions, and I'll answer them mm -hmm. separately. Mm -hmm. what was, uh, was I surprised? No, I wasn't surprised at all. Mm -hmm. uh, those were perceived to be the front runners really going into the nomination day. And part of that is because we have such a established festival schedule. You know, we sort of know which festivals are the ones that, that, you know, are most likely to produce Oscar mm -hmm. nominees at this point, Cannes and Venice mm -hmm. and Telluride and Toronto, and New York to some degree. Um, but also because, you know, there's so much writing that goes on I, I, and so many other award ceremonies that happen before the Oscar nominations, like the Golden Globes and the New York Film Critics and the L.A. Film Critics uh, Awards. And it just feels like groupthink starts to set in at some point and mm -hmm. we get such a, a clear idea of who the nominees are going to be. 
that there are usually very few surprises on the actual nomination day. And I actually think that's something the Academy should look at changing. I don't know if they could move up the nomination period or something like that. I know they want to give everyone time to see everything, but it does take a little bit of the fun out of it. If you're one of these people who follows it all uh, closely, because there's not a lot of surprise on that day. Mm -hmm. Um, When it comes to my own personal preferences, uh, I thought all those movies were very, very good, Mm -hmm. but I will acknowledge that my taste this year drifted towards even smaller movies. Um, None of those films made my top 10 of the year. I was really drawn to small, independent, personal films. And uh, in fact, my favorite film of the year was a French film called The Taste of Things that is actually just out in wide release now, but it got um, a small release, limited release in December to be eligible for the Oscars. And it it was France's submission for Best International Film over Anatomy of a Fall. Uh, Yet Anatomy of a Fall got so much love that uh, it got nominated in the big categories and Taste of Things, which would be eligible for international films, sort of just got lost in the the shuffle there. But I think it's a real shame. It's a beautiful movie about food and about love and ephemerality. And I highly recommend people go see it. Uh, It's out right now, even though it's not nominated for any Oscars. And then give us a name again. It's called The Taste of Things. Uh, Juliet Binoche is in it. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I got to, I got to say, I, I like that lineup of Oppenheimer and, um, poor things, killers of the flower moon. I, I just, I, and I, I kind of like some of the, and I mentioned Paul Giamatti from the holdovers. I, I really enjoyed that, but I really like divine joy Randolph from the holdovers. I really like Sterling K Brown from American fiction. Mm. And of course, yeah. Lily. Gr- so that was kind of, I, I was thinking more, as I as I made my own list, it's a little bit more of an offbeat grouping, you know, and one that um, I think our audience is going to have to, you know, kind of pay attention to some of these films to really enjoy a performance by someone like Divine Joy, Joy Randolph, who's just remarkable in the holdovers. Paul Giamatti too, but boy, they they are quite. That's, a so, that's so well put. That's so well put, Paul, about Divine Joy Randolph because that performance is so special. Because, in part, you have Paul Giamatti and Dominic Sessa, the two leads, really just sort of going at each other the whole movie. Like, they're very, they're very you know, smart performances, but they're big performances, too. And she gives this very subtle, almost recessive performance as a woman going through a very complicated thing in her life. And she is a person who can do big. You know, I don't know if you saw Dolomite Is My Name, but she does a musical number with Eddie Murphy that is as big as it gets. But here she she holds it all back and does something very small. And and I think it is really powerful and it's an absolutely crucial component of this. Yeah, quite a performance. Looking forward to um, kind of some of these more, the categories that are perhaps a little bit unique. Well, I've got to, I know you're very busy and we always so appreciate your time, Noah Cattell. Just one final question. Looking back at the history, tell us some of the trivia or historical moments from Oscars that that might not typically rise to the top for our Smithsonian Associates audience, but, but that you've kind of paid attention to over the years. Well, I'll give you one that I just read in a book called Oscar Wars by Michael Shulman, which I highly recommend to anybody who cares about the Oscars mm. or really just about Hollywood history Oscar at all. Wars, okay. Yes, by Michael Shulman. And it just came out last year. But in 1957 at the Oscars, um, a man named 
Robert Rich won Best Original Screenplay, or it might have been Best Adapted Screenplay, for a film called The Brave One, about a boy who uh, has a bull that he cares about. He's trying to save the bull's life. And the funny thing about Robert Rich, which many people did not realize until Oscar Knight, is that he did not exist. Nobody knew who Robert Rich was who had written this film. Hmm. He didn't show up at the Oscars. They called his name and nobody came to the podium. And it wasn't like today when there's months and months of reporting on all the nominees. So this was more, more feasible back then. And it did not come out fully until I think years later that Robert Rich was actually a pseudonym for the blacklisted screenwriter Dalton Trumbo, wow. who had written the film surreptitiously and given it to his studio friends. Uh, but at the time, nobody knew any of it. And there was this big investigation into who is Robert Rich. Turned out it was the name of a nephew of a studio executive. He used the name of this person who had no involvement in the film industry whatsoever. He had no idea the film was going to win an Oscar and, uh, and he would get caught. And that's eventually what happened. Um, Trumbo tried to use it to sort of show the absurdity of the blacklist that he was still making films and that he had to invent a persona, uh, to, to do that. Um, and it may have played some small role in ending the blacklist, but it was a very anomalous moment in Oscar's history to give an award to a person that literally does not exist. Wow. That is, that is really fantastic. Thank you for, for pulling that one out. That's a great one to, <laughs> to know about. Cause yeah, I of course have heard the name Dal- Dalton Trumbo, but, uh, that's a wonderful, wonderful story. Well, Noah Cattell, it's always so great to talk with you. Um, my best to you always. And um, we're looking forward to your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. We'll put links so that our audience can find out more about your Smithsonian Associates presentation and all the work that you do. But my best to you. And uh, here's rooting for the Academy and and for Oscar night. Thanks, Paul. I hope everyone enjoyed the presentation and uh, happy Oscars. My thanks to writer, Oscar historian, well-known film critic and returning guest Smithsonian Associate Noah Gattel who'll be presenting at Smithsonian Associates coming up. The title of Noah's presentation is A Night at the Oscars. Please check out our show notes for more information about Noah Gattel and his upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, our wonderful audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well, be safe, and let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. Thanks, everybody. We will see you next week. Thanks for joining us this week on the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast.